a journey to Jerusalem. In December of 2021, we had our Advent series and we called it Signs to a Savior. And we looked at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and these beautiful couple of chapters that tell us about how Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and came to earth. We get this beautiful passage early on. Do not be afraid, an angel says to Mary. You have, been, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. When the new year hit in 2022, we didn't leave the book of Luke, but we started a brand new sermon series. We called it Game Changer, Jesus' mission throughout the gospel of Luke. And from January to Easter, we talked about what Jesus was doing as he was journeying towards Jerusalem. And we wanna continue that passage today. And if you enjoy reading the scriptures, you recognize that there's passage headings, but there's not necessarily thematic breakdowns in the average Bible that we have. The first nine chapters in Luke are really about who is Jesus. The next 10 chapters are about how do we follow Jesus? And if you were looking more closely, you'd recognize that we jumped right into the middle of chapter 10. And here's the reason we did that. Luke 10, 1 to 24, Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them to go and preach the good news, declare the kingdom of God is here and cast out demons, heal the sick and tell people all about me. And these disciples come back and they're excited saying, Jesus, you won't believe what we saw. You won't believe what took place. One of our values as a church is to be a people of an inescapable mission. And back in September, we did a six-week sermon series talking all about that. The sermon series was really about personal evangelism. How do we really engage with our neighbors? How do we practice hospitality? How do we engage in conversation? How do we invite people into church, into our lives, into coffee shops, so we can share with them who Jesus is? But it wasn't just the first month that we did this. We really wanted our sermon series for the first few months to really engage you to go and feel encouraged and equipped and supported to tell others about who Jesus is. And so next we went through the book of Exodus and we saw how God was working through Moses to rescue the nation of Israel up out of Egypt and recognizing that God is working through Moses to bring people to salvation. And we wanted you to hear that news and think, God can use me. I can invite people into my house. I can invite people into coffee shops. I can invite people to church or to a coffee house at Ellerslie. And we wanted to engage with that. We continued it even into January with hard questions. And we sat down, a group of us, and said, what are people really wrestling with? What are the hard questions about science, about sex, about suffering, about why did Jesus die? Or if God is real, why can't we see him? Every step of the way, we wanted to work through this. And every decision, every conversation, every part of our day is part of that discipleship journey. And as we come back to the Gospel of Luke and look over the next five chapters for about eight weeks, we want to encourage you that there is a new step. What is that next step that God is asking us to do? Let's pray and ask for his guidance. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift that you are to all of us in this room and to all of humanity. As we took a break from Luke for about nine months and now come back, may we be reminded that we, all of us, are on this journey to a brand new Jerusalem. And that while Jesus is taking his disciples, he's taking us with him as well to understand what it is that he wants us to do next. So God, I pray that my words would fall down, that yours would be lifted up, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each and every one of us in powerful ways this very morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you're in the building, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, you can always grab your smartphone or tablet to follow along. If you're watching online, you can um, take your phone, tablet, laptop, and follow along as well by, by the Bible app that's on the screen behind me. If you're brand new to church, the Bible's confusing. It's over a thousand pages. There's 66 books. There's 40 authors. There's three languages. It's put together over hundreds of years. We get it. Thankfully, there's a table of contents. Luke is in the New Testament, which means it starts after the birth of Jesus. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in Luke 10, I'll be picking up in verse 25. So the disciples come back and they say, Jesus, we're so excited about what's happening. We cast out demons. We preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We were telling people about what you are doing and who you are, what's going to happen next. And so Jesus is, invite, is spoken to by a lawyer of the law. Coming into verse 25, here's what we read. If you felt like following along word for word, I always preach from the English Standard Version. Behold, a lawyer stood up to, um, to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, first part of our outline this morning is handed right to us in the passage. How am I saved? Now, when we read the book, uh, we, we look at this word lawyer and we might think, oh, is he some sort of um, fancy lawyer who works in the courtroom or does he work in some downtown skyscraper office building? He's neither of those things. He's not even a boring lawyer who just writes wills and, and has you docu-sign some stuff. By lawyer, think seminary um, professor. He is somebody who studies the law. He understands the law deeply. He has literally memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not just the laws, the entire books. And he reads these laws, and then he looks at Jesus, who's been walking around Galilee for a while now, and he goes, these two things don't jive. For him, Jesus is a little bit of a radical. And for him, he thinks, well, Jews should look like us, act like us, talk like us, behave like us, and that makes you one of us. But Jesus isn't doing that. He might look like us. He might talk kind of like us. But he's acting in a way that's so different. And so this lawyer wants to expose him a little bit. Because he looks at Jesus and oh, he's hanging out with sinners. He's actually hanging out with people who are sexually immoral. He has friends who are prostitutes. He hangs out with the sick. And you don't go near a leper. And this man is actually reaching out and touching lepers. And as if that's not enough, he not only calls disciples, that's pretty normal. He called a tax collector to be one of his disciples. That tax collector was taxing his disciples a few years ago. Why would he be doing this? As if all of this wasn't enough. This Jesus, this teacher, this rabbi, he's speaking with power and authority and people are leaving the tabernacles and the, and the synagogues and they're coming to listen to him. And that makes me a little bit jealous. So let's expose him. Let's put him to the test. In other words, the seminary professor expects Jesus to say something completely contrary to the law. He expects Jesus to say something like, it doesn't matter how you live. God welcomes and accepts everybody equally. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus surprises this religious leader. When this religious leader says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and says, what does the law say? 
And as I've been reflecting on this passage all week, I'm really curious the body language of the lawyer at this point. You know, does he stutter? Does he murmur? Is he embarrassed? I picture him being a little bit haughty. Kind of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just kind of this arrogant response. And Jesus surprises him again and says, do this and, and you will live. You've answered correctly. This was a confession of faith that was spoken regularly in the synagogues. There's 613 laws that God through Moses gives to the Israelite people. So how do you summarize 613 laws? This confession of faith was probably said regularly in synagogues and temples and tabernacles, probably spoken regularly among the people. We actually see this response a couple of times in the gospels, most famously in Matthew 22. Very similar to this situation, a group of Pharisees, Sadducees, their religious leaders walk up to Jesus and say, how can you be saved. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. God had given the Jews um, these laws to follow, and they can be uh, boiled down to these two passages, one in Deuteronomy, one in Leviticus. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, it's one of the most important passages in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We've already said it three, four times this morning. And then Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so we see all the law boiled down to these two. And what's really important for us to understand, I'm not sure if you've had conversations with people, maybe you've thought it yourself, the God of the Old Testament seems so radically different than the God of the New Testament. But we see here that in the Old Testament, God is saying, love me, love people. In the New Testament, love me, love people. When we're introduced to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 11, we get to know him a little bit. And throughout the first couple chapters of getting to know him, we read this in chapter 15, verse six. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. The apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, takes this exact phrase from Genesis 15, verse six and puts it in Romans chapter four and says, this is how you are saved. Believe in God and it will be credited to you as righteousness. Now, loving God is not just lip service on Sundays, but God is saying, give all of yourself to all of me. It's not just lip service. He's saying, give all of yourself to all of me. If you take another look at verse 27 and you see the summary that our summary prof rattled off to us, he gives us four ideas, four things to think about. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. The heart is your deepest convictions. Do you believe this is true? Whenever we baptize somebody, we paraphrase Romans 10 verse nine. Do you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? The person in the tank says yes, and we baptize him or her, and we cheer wildly. Do you believe this is true? Your heart, commit yourself totally to God. We want to be people who look more and more like Jesus every single year. You might look back at last week or last month and think, oh, I don't know if I've grown much. But when you look at a year ago, how much have you grown? Do you think that you look more like Jesus today than you did a year ago at this time? I was talking with one of the guys in our church family, and uh, uh, he said, Dave, I I'm an alcoholic. 
and I don't know what to do about it. And so we've met a few times and he can say, now I have been free from alcohol for eight months, a life transformed by Jesus. What about your mind, your reason and your understanding? Sometimes there's this idea that's out there that if you were a Christian, you gotta check your mind at the door, but that's not the case at all. We worship a God who embraces your hard questions, who wants to know what it is that you're wrestling with and dealing with. It's the reason we had the sermon series we just did, because we don't believe God is afraid of conversations about sex or science or suffering or why did his son have to die or did any of it actually happen? And finally, with all your strength, when you think of your spiritual gifts, when you think of your passions, when you think of your natural abilities, when you think of your experiences, when you think of how God has wired you to be, how can you use that to bring glory to God by serving the world around you? You heard David do announcements just a couple minutes ago, and maybe you wanna serve inside the church, and you think, I would love to get involved in the production. That sounds amazing. Or maybe God has wired you to be a blessing outside the church and you wanna coach your kid's soccer team or you wanna be part of the student council or you wanna be a part of the seniors association that's surrounding you. Loving God means giving all of ourselves back to God. So the lawyer shows up to uh, test Jesus and quickly Jesus turns the tables on him and you see in verse 28, Jesus looks at him and says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. The lawyer's trying to test Jesus. And Jesus, always full of love, wants him to understand, how are you already doing what you say you're doing? And you notice in this line, there's both a commendation, you've answered correctly, well done, you understand the law. But are you actually going to do it? There's a challenge that's present there. You may have heard the line before, the longest journey a man must make is from his head to his heart. The summary is simple. How are you saved? Love God love people. To perfectly follow this is impossible, and that's where this religious leader doesn't come to Jesus humbly. He comes to Jesus rather arrogantly, and so he looks at Jesus and he says, well, who is my neighbor? And that's not the response that we would expect. We would re expect the response to be, man, I've fallen short. What can I do to just get a little bit more like you? But he's a seminary prof. He's got a reputation to uphold. I'm teaching all these priests all these Levites. So he has a question, the second part of our outline. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? To understand where this question is coming from, it might be helpful for me to describe what uh, my house looks like. So I've got my house in the middle of the street. To my left is a single parent. To that left is a young family. To that left is a bunch of hermits. They've lived there for 20 months. I have seen them once. I don't know what they do. <laughs> to my right, is a group of young adults who rent the house. To that right is a Nigerian family, then a Muslim family, and then a Sikh family. Why do I bring that up? My neighborhood is probably very similar to your neighborhood. Different backgrounds, different faiths, different nationalities, different economic places. All of us are gathering together and we're doing life the best we know how. But this lawyer is different. Galilee is a Jewish province, and Jesus and his disciples are traveling around this Jewish province, going to Jewish communities. And when they go to Jewish communities, they meet with Jewish people. For this teacher of the law, this Jewish teacher of the law, you look like us, you act like us, you behave like us, and therefore you are one of us. He buys from Jewish markets. He hires Jewish contractors. 
His whole world is full of Jewish people. In fact, for the Jew, um, you are at the center of your world and then you have uh, your immediate family and then your friends and extended family and then anybody who's not a Jew. So this question, who is my neighbor, is really asking Jesus, who's inside my circle and who's outside my circle? Jesus isn't going to fall for that. So he says to him, a parable. This is Luke 10, 30 to 37. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, go and do likewise. This is a real road with real danger. If you were a first century um, audience listening to what's going on, you knew exactly what was taking place here. The road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was a scary road. It was a little more than 25 kilometers in length. It dropped 3,000 feet. Jerusalem is on a hill. Jericho is actually below sea level. And it is filled with um, caves, with rocky crevices. It's a winding, twisting road. So it was perfect for robbers. And people knew that if you were traveling on this road, you better travel in a large caravan, you better travel with your big, strong friend who's a lot bigger than you are because something bad was probably going to happen. There's actually a pass in that road that was called the Pass of Blood for how often people were attacked there. And so as a first century listener, you would hear this and you would go, okay, something bad is about to happen. And the first person we're introduced to is the man who gets, uh, who gets robbed. And most first century stories are a little bit light on details. We don't know anything about this man, and I think that's very much on purpose. More on that later. We don't know if he's a Jew or a Gentile. We don't know if he's rich or poor. We don't know what nationality he is. We don't know anything about him. All we know is that he was robbed and he was left half for dead. Then the priest enters. And this teacher of the law could think to himself, ah, here's one of my people. A priest represents the height of holiness and morality and has responsibilities for the temple. But looking at the man, he goes, eh, not interested, and passes by to the other side. For hundreds of years, commentators have been sticking up for this priest. And they're trying to come up with excuses as to why this priest didn't help him. Well, was he going to Jerusalem or leaving Jerusalem? Maybe that's part of the reason of the challenge going on here. Maybe he was a Gentile and he was a sinner and priests aren't going to engage with sinners. My personal favorite, priests cannot touch dead people. Maybe he was dead. What's he supposed to do? Take a staff and jab him and say, hey, are you alive? Move, do something. The next person we meet is a Levite. Levites assist the priest. They work on the temple. They do responsibilities that are a little bit less important as tasks. And again, you can hear, think of what's going through the lawyer's mind. Ah, the priest was too busy. He had things to do. That ministry assistant, that second level guy, he'll show up, he'll help out a little bit. But the Levite too sees the injured man and walks away. We can make excuses for him too. Well, the guy was half dead. 
So that means he was just recently beaten up. And who knows, maybe those robbers are close by. And if I bend down to help them, they're just going to attack me. So I don't really want to have anything to do with it. I'm just going to carry on my merry own way. At this point in time, the lawyer thinks he knows what's going to happen next. I'm the seminary prof. And the priest that I have taught, he's a little bit too busy. I get it. The Levite that I've also taught, he's the ministry assistant. We don't know what's going on, but for whatever reason, he was unable to. Jesus, I get it. The next guy you're going to talk about is a regular Israelite, and he's going to stand up and, and help this guy, and everything will be good, and I'll be encouraged to do what's right. But then Jesus gives him this verbal uppercut and says a Samaritan man had compassion on him and the Jews hated Samaritans. And so this would have made the lawyer angry. Some half-breed, bacon-eating man with some other religion is, worship, is helping him? What's going on here, Jesus? I don't think this is a real story. For Jews, the Samaritans were among the least liked people. I'll tell you two stories. Between the 9th and the 6th century BC, we don't know exactly when, a group of Samaritans thought they would play a trick on the Jews. On the week of Passover, the holiest week of the year in the Jewish calendar, they took a whole bunch of human bones and they spread them all across the temple. The Jews couldn't do anything. Because priests can't touch a dead body or else they will be made unclean. Levites can't touch a dead body or they will be made unclean. And the regular Israelite can't get in the temple during that week of Passover. Passover was canceled. And the Jews were furious. 586 BC, the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and Judea and they conquer Jerusalem. They take away many of the Jews back to Babylon where they're going to be disseminated all across the, uh, the massive new country. But a few of the Jews are left. A few of the Jews are told, you can farm here. You're the poorest of the poor. We don't have to worry about you. Just be thankful that we didn't kill you. You still have your life. These Jews start marrying the Samaritans. And so the righteous Jews think to themselves, who are you, you bunch of half-breeds? You're marrying Samaritans and Jews. They're coming together. You're mixing religion. You're mixing a holy race with an unpure race. We don't want to have anything to do with you. The Jews hated Samaritans. For this teacher of the law, a dirty half-breed Samaritan outshines the morally outstanding priest and Levite. Take another look in your Bibles or smartphones at verses 36 and 37. Jesus asked the lawyer, hey, of these three people, priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, who do you think acted like a neighbor? The lawyer can't even say the man's race. The one who showed him mercy. He's ticked. Not only does the Samaritan show him mercy um, for the one in lead, but let's look at how he does it. When he saw him, he had compassion. So look again at the middle of that parable. The priest sees him and walks away. The Levite sees him and walks away. The Samaritan sees him and engages with what's taking place. In the book of James, we read this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. If you enjoy writing in your Bibles or highlighting your smartphones, uh, we're going to go through this rapid, uh, rapidly quick, but I think it's very insightful. When he saw him, he had compassion. 
he went to him and bound up his wounds. He went to him. The priest and the Levite walked by. The Samaritan saw him and said, this is somebody I'm going to care about. This is what um, set Jesus apart. When Jesus saw people who weren't Jewish, when Jesus saw people who were sick, he didn't ignore them. He engaged with them. Look at the second part. He bound up his wounds. Now, he probably didn't carry a first aid kit with him. That means that he took the, uh, the, his head covering, ripped it up, and covered the man's wounds. He was now using his comfort to help somebody else. He poured on oil and wine. Remember, this is at least a 25-kilometer walk. And if you're over 40 like me, your muscles get sore. And so you take the oil and you rub it on your muscles and go, okay, I can keep going. You bring wine because it's refreshing and you need a drink along the way. So he took what was his and he gave it to the man. He put him on his own animal. It's a 27 kilometer walk. I'm sure the sandals in the first century were pretty good. I'm not being sarcastic. They had to have figured it out but they're not Nike Airs with special air cushioning. He was riding his donkey for all these kilometers. Now he can't. Now he walks beside his donkey. He brought him to the inn to take care of him, and he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. A denarii is a day, um, you make one denarius for every day that you work. Let me put that into perspective. Imagine you make $50,000 a year. That's 200 bucks a day. He took $400 and gave them to an innkeeper of a stranger he's never met before. I make more than 50 grand. I'm not giving $400 to a total stranger. This is incredible love. Who is your neighbor? Jesus says, the one who is in need. Now take a look at all of those underlines and think about what's taking place here. The Samaritan gave of his time He gave of his comfort, he gave of his money, and he gave of his resources, and he gave it all extravagantly. You could even say that the Samaritan took the love of God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, and with his deepest convictions saw a man made in the image of God and thought, this man needs my help. He had compassion on his neighbor. He counted the cost and he knew that helping would hurt and yet he did it anyway. He showed how much he loves God by how much he loves his neighbor. Now you might look at your watch and go, oh, we ended a little bit early today. That's really nice, but I'm not done. Don't worry. We're at the end of our passage, but we have one last question. What's my motivation What is my motivation? Why should I help somebody else? Why should I do this? When um, a group of us got together and we outlined Luke 10 to uh, 15, we're gonna do uh, Luke 15 on Easter Sunday. We thought, you know what's gonna happen is we're gonna do Luke 10. We already talked about the Good Samaritan back in September, which we did. Dennis Gully, our district coach, spoke about it. So we could probably skip that. And I went back to my office on Monday morning and I opened the Bible and I just could not stop thinking about the Good Samaritan. 
And so I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, we need to tackle this one more time. We need to engage just a little bit more deeply. And we have worked hard over the last five, six months to say, we want to become a church that deeply loves our neighbor. We want to have this invitational culture. I've already talked about it today. We had inescapable mission. We had redemption. We had hard questions. We had sermon series that say, this is how we're going to love our neighbor. We've renovated our foyer so that when people come in, they would go, oh man, it feels like home here. We've been talking about this, praying about this, encouraging you to invite people to the coffee house, invite people to your home. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if any of you knew that or not. Invite people over. And then we wanted people to engage with it. And you start hearing this encouragement over and over and over again. And, I, and you think, okay, uh, as the pastor, am I just beating my head against the wall or is this sinking in? Because sometimes encouragement, even with the best intentions, can feel a little bit like guilt. Actually, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to worship planning on uh, Tuesday afternoon, and I said, hey, did I come across as, as um, guilty, like you have to do this? And they pardon me, and they said, no, you were okay. But I was nervous because I didn't want you to feel guilt-driven in ministry. I never want to do that. But here's the thing. I got, went out for lunch on the, this past week, and I went to a restaurant, paid for my bill, and they said, hey, would you like to add $2 to the Stollery Hospital? My son has gone to the Stollery a lot because he likes ramming his head into things. And I thought, the Stollery's a great place, but no, I don't want to go, but I felt a little bit guilty for not giving. So going back to the Israelite, what does he think? This religious leader goes, okay, the priest walked by, didn't do anything. The Levite walked by, didn't do anything. Okay, Jesus, now you're going to say the Israelite. And he's going to feel encouraged to do the right thing, but it's not going to change his heart. And here's what Jesus does. And it's astonishingly brilliant. A Samaritan walked by. And that faceless person on the ground where we don't know if it's Jew or Gentile, we don't know if he's rich or poor, we don't know if he's a sinner or a part of God's chosen people, it's you. What would happen if you were attacked on that road? What would happen if you had been robbed, if you had been bloodied up, if you were lying half dead? Wouldn't you want a neighbor to take care of you? And the lawyer goes, whoa. And here's the thing, you are that person. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God died for us. There is a beautiful story of the good Samaritan, but Jesus is the great Samaritan. Jesus is the one, fully God, fully man, be, um, being told by God the Father, I need to send you on a rescue mission. The people are half dead and they need salvation. And so Jesus comes down to earth and meets us in our depravity. And he says, I will give you everything. I gave up my wealth for you. I gave up being in heaven for you. I am down here with you in the muck and mire so that you might see and understand what it feels like to be saved by me. We are the ones who need to be saved. And so God looks at us and says, go and do likewise. That's incredible. What is your motivation? God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you so that you might have salvation. And with joy and thanksgiving, we turn around and we pass it on. 
What does that look like? You tell me. The priest looked and went away. The Levite looked, walked away. The Samaritan looked and he saw. So what do you see? Do you see the people broken and hurting in Turkey? Do you see Brian and Jessica Mirholm and you think, I need to start supporting them? Are you passionate about Hope Mission or the mustard seed or Adira or something of that sort and you think, I need to start giving to that? When you walk by, when you drive home, do you see your neighbor? Is it time to invite them over? Is it time to show them what love looks like? That we would be a church so marked by love that when people walk in, they would feel, ah, the love of Jesus and the love of people is in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Good Samaritan. And maybe we've heard this story before and maybe it's not new for us, but maybe for the first time our eyes are open and we say, God, you are amazing. And knowing that we are the ones who are broken and hurting and you have come to rescue us. And so God, we pray that you would work in our lives. Please forgive us for when we have not loved our neighbor the way we should. Fill us with this power from your Holy Spirit to love the person that you place in front of us. And may we be a people that invite, include, and invest so that others might see the good news of the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.